This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cashback really adds up. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. It seems that every U.S. state, like every foreign country, is operating with its own set of rules when it comes to COVID-19. Who can go there and, of course, what happens when you get there. And the rules keep changing. I'll speak with Arnie Weissman, the editor-in-chief of Travel Weekly, about the pent-up demand for travel and what challenges that creates for so many destinations desperate to welcome visitors. Then, a look at how California is dealing with COVID-19 and travel in particular. The Los Angeles Times' Hugo Martin checks in with a report on the Golden State and Disneyland in particular, and what California, citizens and visitors alike, can look forward to in 2021. First up, Arnie Weissman. Joining me now, one of our regulars on the show, He's also the editor-in-chief of Travel Weekly when he's not appearing on The Travel Detective uh, on PBS with with me. Arnie Weissman, how are you, sir? Good, Peter. How are you? Okay. So here we are. You know, we've seen the, the hope of the virus vaccine. We've seen the hope of it being a scalable solution. We've seen more than one pharmaceutical company say, we've got it, and it works, and it's 90 or 95% effective. And we're seeing fast track by the FDA in getting these things approved. Uh, now, having said that, I still have no idea when the vaccine's showing up. I still have no idea if anybody's going to even trust it to take it or trust them to take it. But at the same time, there's such pent-up demand for travel that coupled with the news of the hope of a vaccine 
has started to turn things around in the travel industry, hasn't it? It has. And there's lots of indications that 2021 is going to be a banner year for travel, or at least, let's say, the second half, <laughs> at least. Uh, what you're, you're seeing is a combination of things. So uh, you're right to wonder how many people are going to uh, take the vaccine. The, the latest numbers I saw uh, were 58% will take it. Uh, that's up from 52% in the summer, uh, which was down from back in last spring when they were before the idea of vaccines became so politicized, uh, the number was close to, uh, to uh, 80%. So it's been going all over the place, but it is moving up. And I would suppose that particularly if countries say that you must be vaccinated to come in, which countries do now with other vaccines, uh, then that number will continue to grow. So the vaccines, no question about it, uh, our readers, who a large number of them are travel advisors, uh, the phones basically started ringing the, the morning that the first vaccine news came out and has only uh, gone even, uh, even more, more so. And what's interesting is it's a bit regional that the travel advisors in the north, northeast, and on the West Coast, we're saying, you know, the, the calls are, are at high volume. Uh, when, when our reporter called uh, an agency in, in Houston, Texas, she said, well, yeah, of course the phones are ringing. My, my clients have been traveling all along, you know. So depending on uh, how, how much you were paying attention to the um, perceived uh, challenges of travel, you may or may not have been among those who were encouraged with the vaccine. But what you're, what's converging with the vaccine news, and even preceded the vaccine news, is a level of pent-up demand that probably has not existed since World War II. Because even with 9-11, there was that initial, you know, huge drop in travel. And uh, the travel suppliers sort of found that intersection between greed and fear where they could offer a deal and people uh, got going again. In fact, um, the levels of, of occupancy in cruises by the uh, end of the next year were surpassing what they had been uh, prior to, to 9-11. So you're seeing a lot of pent-up demand, a lot of people who, who, having not gone anywhere this year, are doubling down. It's kind of like a dormant volcano that's going to blow its top. There's uh, people are ta looking at taking trips that are more exotic, more expensive. They feel like, uh, especially older people, feel that they had a year stolen from them. One of the years, you know, that they were maybe retired and looking forward to doing a lot of travel. So they're going to make next year's trip epic. And you're seeing more demand for things like, uh, you know, Amman jet expeditions, where you get a private plane to kind of a fabulous place that's, that's remote. Those numbers are going up. Uh, the cruise lines are seeing Azamaro, Region 7 Seas, Oceania, all when uh, they released their schedules for 20 to 2022, uh, had more bookings they were breaking records, more bookings than in those first weeks of any previous year for which they've been keeping records. Um, and so there's a travel agency group called Travel Leaders uh, oh, yeah. 
they 99% of uh, the people said they are looking forward to a big trip in uh, 2021. 70% said they've already marked their calendars. And 23% said they're going to still travel in 2020. So you're, you're seeing a, a, a level of demand that I can't recall uh, ever seeing in, in the industry. And I've been looking at it for 35 years. Yep, I see it. Uh, you know, people are, are, are looking ahead. They're getting out their wallets. And they're worried that if they don't book now, what they want to do in May, June, and July of 2021, let alone 2022, won't be available. And it's not uh, a misplaced concern, uh, particularly because a, a lot of both resorts and cruise lines are going to be operating at reduced capacity for some time into 2020. Because uh, the, the social distancing is still going to be part of our lives for a while. And uh, so you are seeing some actual uh, selling out of kind of this more small group uh, tours to places that are unusual. And uh, it's not a bad idea if you're looking at booking in 2021 to start talking to a travel advisor right now because uh, things will fill up. They are. Now, having said that, are they changing their behavior, though? Not in terms of this, their determination to travel, but their behavior about what they want to do when they travel. And the reason why I ask that is I go back to 9-11, again, during the 2008-2009 recession, even during the volcano eruption in 2010, uh, I noticed that the biggest, well, the biggest boom in travel was happening in an unexpected way. It was families traveling together suddenly uh, and families traveling together as a unit uh, because they just felt, you know, they needed to be together as, as the industry recovered. Absolutely. And, and there was a couple things that drive that. Uh, one is the baby boom uh, generation, our grandparents now. And they want to see their grandkids, and they want to, want to see their own kids. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a hard uh, offer to refuse when your grandparents or your parents say, hey, we'll take the whole family on a nice vacation. So that's one thing that feeds it. But uh, particularly, it really started after 9-11. There, there were a significant number of people who were stranded somewhere. Because as you recall, all, all air traffic was shut down. And that feeling of, of being separated, and particularly separated during a trip, did spur a lot of this intergenerational travel, which has been uh, rising, really, since 2001. We were talking about people trying to get a jump you know, with pent-up demand, booking everything they can for next year, starting maybe in the second quarter. But that doesn't address what's going on in the cruise industry, where you've got the CDC lifting their no-sale order, last October, so about a month and a half ago. Uh, and that doesn't mean that the ships are going to sail right away. They now have to basically support about a 75-step program of redesigning their floor plans and their ventilation and their medical facilities, social distancing rules, how they perform their entertainment, separation in the dining room, protocols for boarding the ship, coming off the ship, shore excursions. It goes on and on and on so that we're not even expecting to see any of the ships that are from U.S.-based cruise lines literally taking pay paying passengers until maybe the end of February. So do we see the same kind of behavior that we were seeing 
with other forms of travel? Well, it's interesting. I, I spoke actually to the CEOs of the four largest cruise companies, and I, and I asked them each of, uh, well, the three that were sailing in um, Europe, two of them, MSC and a carnival brand, Costa, were sailing in Europe, and uh, Royal Caribbean is getting ready to uh, sail in Singapore uh, early December, and asked about the ones that have had the sailing experiences with the protocols, which are not as strict as the ones that will probably be put into place in U.S. ports. What was on the guest comment cards? What were they saying? And uh, the answer is that they got very, very high marks on almost everything. The only area where people were less than happy was the shore excursions. And it's not just that the, uh, what they're doing with the shore excursions now is you're required to go with the ship-sponsored shore excursion. And, and it's not that the ship-sponsored shore excursions aren't interesting, but you don't, if you wanted to get take a cruise because you wanted to come into a port and just walk off the ship and wander through the streets, that's not happening. And also the, the number of places that these early cruises went to in Europe were much more limited. Not every port met the criteria that the cruise lines had set up for safety uh, and when they were going out. So people who love cruising, and one of the reasons that the CDC lifted the the no-sale order and made the conditional sailing order was because they had asked for public comments. And 75% of the people who gave a public comment gave a comment saying, please, let sailing begin again. You know, cruisers got a cruise. And and cruisers are among the most loyal, dedicated type of, of trip or vacation that you're going to ever see. I mean, they just really love the experience. So if they go on knowing that there are going to be things different, um, that particularly when it comes to the social distancing and the reduced capacity and uh, the you know, not as many people will be on a ship. I think actually some people will see that as a, as a positive. You know, you go oh, on, sure. on, on with some of these things that, that literally it hit thousands and thousands of people on them, there'll be 60%. Uh, well, right now, Arnie, otherwise. right now, Arnie, since July, cruise lines in Europe have sailed about 100,000 passengers. They've done about 200 cruises, limited capacity, as you, as you mentioned. So maybe 35 to 40% of, the, of, of their capacity, so the ships are not full, and the passengers are loving the experience. The protocols are exactly the way that, that you just described them, and guess what? No incidents. Nobody has gotten sick. No, actually, they have. What, what's, what's interesting is there's no been no outbreaks. In other right. words, there have been cases where somebody was found to be infected, and they were able to isolate them, and to do contact tracing, actually, uh, and ha- ask others to get tested. And there was never uh, a wide-scale outbreak, despite large numbers, I mean, uh, of people on board any given ship. And interestingly, you know, there was, a, an, there was an outbreak on a smaller ship, a Sea Dream ship. Sure, uh, out of Barbados, yeah. 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 And, uh, and I think in some ways a bigger ship has an advantage. They have the space to really isolate and... Uh, be able to figure out who, where, the contact tracing is interesting, 
because uh, in the case of um, the Costa ships, they actually have a wearable uh, that you put on your your wrist that will tell them without, you know, it's not something they're trying to invade your privacy, but if you were within six feet for 15 minutes of someone who got infected, you will, they will find you and let you know that you need to get tested and isolated for the, for the moment. All right, so before, before, we, before we run out of time, would you go on a cruise tomorrow? I would. I, w- I would find it. I think it's, I mean, of course, for me, I, it depends where it's going and what the ship is. Okay, <laughs> but, fine. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a snob in that regard, but uh, I would. In fact, what I'm hoping is to go on one of the trial runs that are done prior to revenue. My thanks to Arnie. The numbers aren't improving for California, and most of the state is in various stages of a lockdown. Then there's Orange County, home to Disneyland, currently closed. Hugo Martin from the Los Angeles Times has an update on the Magic Kingdom and what it really means to the rest of us and how some travel behavior may be changed for good as we seek to literally get away. My next guest, love having him on the show. He writes for the Los Angeles Times. He's always on top of things. Let's see if he is today. Oh, just kidding. You go, Martin. <laughs> I did that just to get you. I just did. Thanks, I mean, <laughs> But one yeah, of the things you and I does. always, I know, one of the things you and I always talked about, and this is pre-pandemic, you know, was, uh, was Disneyland and the yeah. Disney empire. Um, you know, we've seen you know, so many changes now and some starts and stops and starts and stops throughout their, their worldwide empire, whether it's Disneyland Paris or Shanghai, Hong Kong, uh, or, uh, or Tokyo, and of course, you know, Walt Disney World in Florida, and last but not least, the, the iconic Disneyland in Anaheim. So right. the, the one that's not opening, at least that I know, is, uh, is Disneyland. Uh, Disney World did open. I think they're still open, correct? Yeah. Yeah, and some of the uh, some of the parks uh, abroad in in Asia and Europe have been opening and closing based on you know how bad the uh, the pandemic is going over there. Uh, but uh, yeah, Disneyland has remained closed since mid March, and um, they did open um, downtown Disney, which was the shopping and uh, restaurant district, um, and, and that's that's remained open so far. Um, but um, there's really no telling when Disneyland might open again because the state has tied the opening to the theme park to, uh, you know, what the coronavirus counts and the infection rates are in in Orange County, which is where Disneyland is. So uh, until Orange County's numbers improve, uh, the state's not going to let the park open. And that means furloughing more people. They just announced... uh more furloughs just a, what, a couple of days ago. Yeah, what happened there was uh, Disneyland was hoping that um, the the rules for reopening would be in their favor, so they started calling people back to get ready to reopen. And when they saw the actual rules, they realized this place is not going to open for a while, so they let go a bunch of people. Um, I talked to a couple of union folks who said it was something like uh, uh, 650 people that were called back and then were told, sorry, doesn't look good, and they sent them back. So, um, yeah, the park is closed with no real uh, you know, insight into when they might reopen. And to give you some dollar figures here, their second quarter loss at Disney was $1 billion. Their third quarter loss was $3.5 billion. So we're talking a serious hit here. 
Yeah, the theme parks were a big part of their revenue stream. The, the only bright spot on this all is um, their Disney Plus, uh, you know, cable package has been going like big gangbusters because, you know, we're all stuck, locked up in our homes, and so why not uh, watch some Disney shows? So they've been they've been breaking in um, the revenue on that front, but uh, not the parks. Wow. You know what? I can't wait for 2020 to end. How about you? I mean, I'm, I'm like a barricaded suspect, even though I'm at, you know, the Four Seasons Hotel here in, in Los Angeles. It's not, you know, the, the neighborhood has changed because it, it, not very many people on the streets, not many people, in the, you know, we're not, I'm not seeing the usual craziness in Los Angeles. Yeah, definitely. Uh, downtown Los Angeles has changed and, and uh, you know, the, the usual hustle and bustle that you would see is, is gone from what, what I have. I haven't been there in quite a while because they just have us, uh, you know, all locked away in our, our little homes. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, downtown L.A. has become somewhat of a ghost town, I'm hearing. Now, we saw what happened over Thanksgiving where millions of Americans essentially either ignored or just flat out disregarded the CDC request that people not travel over the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, they crowded on airplanes. The TSA was screening nearly a million people a day over that four-day holiday. Uh, the AAA reported a huge burst in the numbers. It's, it's, it's a boom in the numbers of people on the roads. Um, I guess I wasn't surprised by that, but, you know, the, the scientists tell us, not a good idea. So yeah, what is, I'm actually, I'm actually yeah, looking at the, the TSA numbers. They said that... Uh, um, during this, as you, as you pointed out, a little over a, mil, a million travelers a day during the Thanksgiving weekend. But if you go back a year, it went over 2 million, 2.8 million for uh, the busiest day. So even though it did spike up a bit, we're still at uh, about 50% or, or even less than, than what we were a year ago. So I think some people are, uh, you know, taking heed uh, and staying off of or, uh, staying off planes, but just not traveling uh, at all. Exactly. So, what we got to look forward to now? You know, we're coming into Christmas. Christmas is traditionally not as big a travel uh, period as Thanksgiving, uh, because I mean, the the irony is, of course, we all know when Thanksgiving is. It's a Thursday. It always is a Thursday. Everybody knows it's a four day weekend. Whatever day Christmas is depends on you know the calendar and of course how people want to stagger their their trips. I'm not seeing as many people traveling for Christmas as I did for Thanksgiving, and that's not really surprising. But now let's jump a little forward here, Hugo, and what's yeah. your crystal ball telling you about the travel patterns for 2021? Uh, you know, I think it all is going to depend on the, the vaccine, but I, I've been saying for a while that I, I think we're going to experience a real bounce back uh, to, to travel and to the economy in general once uh, you know the vaccine's been distributed. Uh, we saw this during the uh, the recession in 20, uh, 2008 and two thousand nine, um, when the economy started to come back. It really came back, and it was sort of the pent up demand where people said, "Well, I haven't traveled for a year, or I haven't really spent a lot on my family in a year, or you know, I've been you know pinching pennies. Now it's time to really spend." And, and I and I get the sense that that's going to happen. Uh, again, in in 2021, people are just going to want to go gangbusters because they've been through, you know, the pandemic for so long and they want to sort of, uh, you know, 
go out and, and, and spend and, and enjoy. Well, then the question becomes, assuming we acknowledge this pent-up demand, where are they going to go? Not whether or if or when, where? Yeah, uh, unclear. I mean, because we still don't know what, what uh, countries are going to be easy to travel to. You know, if if we get the, the pandemic under control, uh, that's great. But if uh, Europe is still struggling with it or South America... Uh, maybe it won't be so easy, or, or we just won't want to, you know, go to a country where they're still struggling with it. Um, but I'm sure domestically that, that we'll be um, having a big demand to travel domestically. You know, it's been, I've been hearing from people, we were talking about Disneyland, uh, people who are in Southern California can't go to Disneyland because it's closed. They're certainly going to want to rush over to Florida and, and go to Disney World and, and, you know, get their Disney fix on. You know what, you're right. But, you know, more and more people now... No, look, beware the law of unintended consequences. More and more people are actually rediscovering their own country. They're rediscovering America. You and I saw this maybe six or seven months ago with the boom in RV sales or, or rentals. Uh, now we're seeing more rental cars being uh, rented. And now we're seeing more people in their own cars doing, you know, two and three day trips or one tank trips, as I like to say, within their own region to discover, you know, communities that they didn't even know existed within that 90 or 120 mile radius. Right. I, I was also seeing a, a big uh, de- uh, upswing in demand for camping because uh, immediately after the pandemic hit here in March, they closed yeah. all the state parks and all the campsites and they've been reopening them and the demand has just shot up. I have to tell you, I'm not a camper. Uh, I understand it. I accept it. Uh, I'm sorry, but I'm not going. Um about the closest I could probably do is glamping. And right. even that, you know, I don't necessarily want to spend all that kind of money to be under a tent. And then there's the RV experience. We saw what happened earlier this year where sales were spiking at RV places and the rental cases too for those RVs. Uh, but there's another thing that I'm seeing, and I'm going I'm to bring it up to you because it may represent a sort of dramatic and radical change in traveler behavior. Yeah. Uh, people... In this, in this mood that we're in, are maybe not necessarily picking destinations as vacation destinations. They're picking them as lifestyle choices for their next chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, back when Airbnb was exploding, Marriott quietly amassed a portfolio of 10,000 homes that nobody knew they had. Right. Uh, it's called uh, Homes and Villas by Marriott. And these are two, three, four, five, and six-bedroom homes that can sleep up to 10 people. They're at lakes and oceans and rivers and mountains and deserts. And they're in communities where you have social distancing built in. Uh, they start their room, they start their houses for rent at about 200 bucks a night. Mm-hmm. So if you're a family of four, that's what, 50 bucks a night? Uh, right. if, you're, if you have two families of four in the house that sleeps like eight or 10 people, it's like $25 a night. And you can't afford to wake up in Burbank for that. So the, the, the interesting thing is to see how many people are saying, okay, the mom and dad can work remotely. The kids can learn remotely. We're not stuck commuting on the 405 or the 10 or the 110 or the 101. Uh, we're saving all that time and money. We're only going out to eat when we want to go out to eat. The rest of the time we're self-contained in the house. And this is a very interesting change I'm seeing. Are you seeing similar stuff? Yeah, it reminds me that uh, we were also seeing uh, people who own maybe condos up in Mammoth or in um, 
Palm Springs that they, they usually just rent out, you know, and they maybe stay there a couple times a week. Um, instead of doing that, this year they decided they're going to ride out the pandemic as much as possible in their, you know, in their condos, in their smaller homes that they normally rent out. So, yeah, we had a, a, a surge of people moving up to, you know, it'd be Mammoth and, and Arrowhead and Big Bear and places like that. And they decided we're just going to ride out this thing in our, you know, second home, our little vacation home, uh, because we don't want to live in the big city. We don't want to be around other people. Um, and we saw a lot of that. That was a, a really interesting twist to, to uh, you know, people leaving town for instead of going on vacation, they just wanted to ride out as much as possible. Yeah, well, you know, we know we've gone from, you know, working in an office to working from home to working from anywhere. And so my right. question is, we know that the, you know, mom and dad can work remotely. We know that the kids can learn remotely. Uh, but is this only short term or do you see larger and, and, and bigger implications here? Yeah, I think it's going to change the way we do work. I mean, um, I've, I've been talking to a lot of people who feel like, you know, this is going to continue on after the pandemic has, has been resolved in some way. Uh, because we learned that so many of our businesses can be done remotely. Uh, you know, we've sort of uh, figured out how to use Zoom and, and how to talk to people and how to connect several calls at the same time. You know, uh, skills we, we didn't quite have, uh, you know, honed down before. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think that's going to be a part of the thing that's going to uh, continue after the pandemic. Yep, I think we're in for a little bit of a longer ride here um, and, and, and some significant lifestyle changes that nobody could have anticipated eight months ago. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree. So what does that do now to downtown cities? You know, the, 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 you know Midtown New York, Midtown Los Angeles, uh, Midtown Chicago. Are we just going to end up with 40 and 50 completely vacant office buildings? Yeah, I don't know if it'll get that bad. I think we're going to probably um, reduce the amount of time where we go into the office because, you know, we could do our work at home. So maybe just on Fridays or Mondays or something like that. But, um, you know, as I was talking about the, the recession before, um, you know, we had all these business meetings that were canceled, all these conferences that were canceled during the recession because it was, you know, the economy was so bad. When it came back, it came back pretty strong, um, you know. But some companies realized, you know, we could do it by phone. We could do these meetings uh, remotely, so they cut back somewhat, but but not not entirely. So I, so I think people are going to go back to the office, but realizing they don't have to go, you know, five days a week. Yeah, I, you know, if you're doing a, a meeting with one department and another department within the same company, I get the idea of a Zoom call. But if you're looking for new business, you're looking to make new contacts, uh, you want to go, you know, VFR traffic, you know, visiting family relatives, you know what? You got to get on a plane and go. It's eye contact. It's face-to-face stuff. And that, I think, was still going to be with us when all the technology subsides. That's my guess, and that's my hope for Christmas. How about that? (laughs) My thanks to Hugo, and my thanks to Arnie Weissman, and my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For conversations with the world's leaders in travel and answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate or review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, globally and locally, just log on to petergreenberg.com. 
It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts.